Good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 2? Last week in our study of John's Gospel, we came to chapter 2 and uh, to a story that has become a little controversial in the minds of some. Uh, It's the story of a wedding that was held in the town of Cana, a place up in the Galilee region. And uh, it was a wedding whose guest list included Jesus, his disciples, and Jesus' mother, Mary. Now, as we said last week, there's nothing controversial about wedding itself. They happen uh, every week all over the world. But what makes this story somewhat controversial was the interaction between Jesus and his mother, first of all, as well as how in the minds of some, Jesus seemed to be promoting the use of alcohol through this, the first miracle of his ministry. So let's get into the text again, verse 1, kind of review a little bit. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, Cana, as I said, was a little village, and we know it was about eight or nine miles from Nazareth. Nazareth, of course, was the place where Jesus grew up. He still, no doubt, had many, uh, had uh, much of his family still lived there, I should say. And as we said last week, many believe that this wedding could have actually been from one of Jesus' relatives, a cousin perhaps, which would explain why Mary was so worried that they had run out of wine um, and that the servants seemed to be under her authority. Verse 5 kind of indicates that, uh, probably because she was family and helping to oversee the whole feast. Now, it says that um, on the third day there was this wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. The mother of Jesus was there. Notice the text says, and the mother of Jesus was there, not Mary's son Jesus was there. say, well, what difference does it make? Uh, Actually, a big difference. I'll let J. Vernon McGee, great old uh, preacher, tell you why he thinks it's a big deal. He said, uh, it is interesting to notice that Mary is spoken of as the mother of Jesus. The Savior was not famous because he was the son of the Virgin Mary, But she was well known because she was the mother of our Lord. The scriptures always give the preeminent place to Christ and not to Mary. End quote. So, verse 2. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they had run out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to to him, They have no wine. Now, guys, we pointed out last time, weddings in the... In the first century, Israel were a big deal, a big deal. In fact, they were a major social event. Uh, The typical wedding would last a week. And during that time, uh, all those who had been invited pretty much uh, left their normal routine. They left taking care of their crops, household chores, whatever other uh, jobs they may have had. And for that whole week, all they did was celebrate the newlyweds and enjoy the feast. Each night was a festival occasion where they would dress the uh, bride and groom up in their wedding robes and with torches in hand would walk through the streets of the town and everyone would come out of their houses and congratulate the newlyweds. I mean, it was a a big deal. They were treated like king and queen uh, during this week. And it was an incredible time for the young couple, seeing as most of them were poor. Most of them were poor. And they knew that after the wedding feast, as poor people, uh, they would most likely spend the rest of their lives in backbreaking labor. And uh, as such, the wedding feast became a joyful time of uh, celebration uh, before launching into a life of hardship and drudgery. Now, how did Jesus respond to this uh, 
all this joy and merrymaking? How, how did he respond? Um, did he condemn them for their partying, for their celebrating? Did he act all, you know, super spiritual like the Pharisees and, you know, I don't have time for such nonsense. I'm going to go to the temple and pray for five hours. You know, that kind of thing. No, he joined in the celebration. He joined, don't get me wrong, he didn't get drunk. But he joined in the celebration. This was a joyous occasion. This was a big deal uh, for any town to have a young couple marrying, uh, getting married in their town, especially if it was Jesus' family. Uh, this was a joyful occasion, and he certainly didn't put it down. He, uh, he went to support the couple. Uh, you know, Jesus wasn't like John the Baptist, who was a great man, but different ministry. John the Baptist removed himself from society, went out and lived in the wilderness to make people come to him, right? Not Jesus. He went where the people were, right? Everyday common people. Not to, con not to condemn them or to isolate himself from them, uh, but to love them and to interact with them. This is why sinners love to be around Jesus and why they don't like to be around a lot of Christians today, why they didn't like to be around the Pharisees back then. Uh, the Pharisees back then were all about judging people, looking down on others. Uh, the Pharisees hated everybody but their own group, other Pharisees. And uh, consequently, people didn't like to be around the Pharisees at all. Of course, the Pharisees were the ones who kind of helped that because when they would go through town, they would, you know, and people were all over, they would take their robes and pull them tightly to their bodies as they walked through the crowd because they didn't want the wind to take the flap of their robe and brush it up against a Gentile and thereby defile themselves. <laughs> With that attitude, you're not making many friends, right? So, but we see that even today. Don't we, a lot of Christians who are very unfriendly, they're not pleasant to be around. I was telling first service, uh, back in the mid-'80s, I took some classes at a Bible college in the area. And so at one point they had a banquet for the year, uh, a doll, and a lot of faculty, uh, board members of the college, administrators, and some students were there. Cindy and I went. And uh, they knew I was a pastor, so I think they gave us a little courtesy invite. Uh, and also we went, and we were at a table with all Christians, but we're not talking just Christians. We're talking about uh, administrators of the college. We're talking about people that ran ministries, all the folks, they were the most unfriendly group of people you would ever want to meet. They didn't crack a smile. I tried to engage in conversation. They wouldn't even look at me, gave me a quick answer. and wouldn't even... That was the most unpleasant evening I have ever spent around Christian people. I mean, it was really sad to see it. You know, Jesus wasn't like that. I mean, there was something special about Jesus, right? I mean, something magnetic, if you will. Something that drew people to him. And I believe it was the joy and the love that he radiated, coupled with his kind and compassionate heart towards them. I mean, they knew that Jesus cared about them. They knew he cared about them, and that's why they were drawn to him. Not because he participated in their sins. Of course he didn't. But because he really cared about them, and it showed. So it shouldn't shock us that he would go to one of the biggest social events of the year, a wedding. So verse 3, And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, we get the impression from the English that Jesus is being, you know, harsh or even abrupt with his mother by calling her woman. But actually, that word in the Greek is a polite term. 
although not an intimate one, not a, a term of closeness, but a polite term. Um, a, comparable, a, a, a comparable English word would be ma'am. Ma'am, all right? It is significant, guys, and don't miss this. It is significant that he didn't refer to her as mother, something that he had no doubt called her by um, ever since he was old enough to talk. It seems from the gospel, Gospels, though, that from the time he began his public ministry to his very last words that he addresses her with as he hung from the cross in John 19, 26, he only refers to her as woman. Why is that? When Jesus began his public ministry as Messiah and Savior, from that moment on, his relationship to his earthly family changed. They would have to relate to him like every other person on the face of the earth, every other sinner to saint, and that would include Mary. You see, he didn't want to give the impression that because he had family, they would somehow have some special pull with him. They would somehow have some special, you know, like we're so used to uh, in our culture. And, of course, it's not wrong to favor our family members, uh, you know, and things. But he didn't want them to think that when it came to their relationship with him, they could bypass the normal channels that every other sinner would have to go through, repentance and submission. And they would automatically have to be a shoe-in for the kingdom. They would have to relate to him like every other sinner on the face of the earth would have to relate to him, and that included Mary. It's important that we understand, guys, that Mary was a very godly young woman, maybe 16 years old, when the angel Gabriel uh, appeared to her and announced to her that she had been chosen by God to be the mother of the Messiah. And uh, Mary was chosen by God to be the mother of the Messiah, not because she was sinless, as some people contend. And Mary was sinless, and she remained sinless her entire life. Well, Mary herself seems to contradict that idea. If you turn to Luke chapter 1, I'll show you what I mean. I mean, we know only Jesus was sinless. But Mary, in her Magnificat, which we read in Luke chapter 1, it's her, her prayer to God, praising him. And she said in verse 46, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my, who? Savior. Savior. Mary is acknowledging she's a sinner in need of a Savior, just like every other person on the face of the earth. Verse 48, For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant, for behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. Now she's actually reacting to what the angel Gabriel told her. That when he announced that she had been chosen by God to be mother of the Messiah and all. And um, Gabriel goes on to say, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Listen, blessed are you among women. He didn't say blessed are you above women. He said, blessed are you among women. In fact, the very last time we see Mary in the New Testament is in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, where she is seen in the upper room praying with the disciples, and they were not praying to, you know, they're praying with Mary, not to Mary, is the point I want to make, okay? She's up in the upper room with the disciples, and they're praying with Mary, not to Mary. And because Jesus, no doubt, through the Holy Spirit, 
I believe the Holy Spirit re, uh, revealed this to the Lord as he was uh, growing up. How that over the course of the centuries that would follow, many would uh, venerate and even try to worship Mary. Uh, he was careful then not to do anything or say anything, uh, you know, not to say anything about her or uh, to her that might reinforce this concept that she was to be worshipped and all. In fact, um, uh, there was a push a few years ago among the Catholic, some Catholics who wanted to make Mary co-redemptrix. There was a, a, a cross in front of a church in Italy. On the one side, Jesus was hanging on the cross, and on the other side, Mary was hanging. Now, they say she wasn't equal redemptrix. Jesus did 70%. She did like 30% of our salvation. I believe the Holy Spirit revealed to Jesus Christ what they would do to this beautiful woman who loved God, uh, who, who demonstrated such, such submission to God. Um, Behold the handmaiden of the Lord, do to me according to your word. I am God's servant, whatever he wants for my life, I submit to. What a beautiful woman she was. And it's sad when some try to exalt her to the place of worship. It's also sad when evangelicals, because that some have exalted her to the place of worship, try to run her down. Let's leave her alone. Let's just take her for what the scripture says about her. She was a very godly, wonderful woman. But understand something. Jesus was very careful not to do anything that would reinforce that unbiblical and heretical view of her. In fact, he goes out of his way to not put her down, but just not to exalt her in any way. Turn to Luke chapter 11. Now let's read verse 27. And it happened as he spoke these things. So he's out somewhere preaching, ministering. As he spoke these things, a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed, which nursed you. But he said more than that, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Not putting her down just not lifting her up. Turn to Matthew 12. Verse 46. While he was still, speak, uh, still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brother stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, Look, your mother... And your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. Now, what did the Lord do? My mother, the Virgin Mary, get out of my way. I got to go talk to her right now. She wants me. I'm there. <laughs> Verse 48, but he answered and said to the one who told him, who is, he said to this person who brought the news, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, so much did Jesus not want to exalt his mother that he never even refers to her, no, not by name, nor by the term mother, in fact. I checked all the gospel, uh, all four gospels yesterday, and uh, it, I, I discovered that Nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus call Mary uh, Mary or even Mother. Others called her Jesus' mother. He never referred to her as 
mother. Verse 3. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now guys, as we have already said, the typical wedding feast back then will last a week. And uh, during that time, the host family, and in particular the bride and groom, was expected to make sure that all the guests had plenty of food and drink. To run out of food, and especially out of wine during this festival week, well, to say the least, that was a, a great social disaster because it brought great shame upon the family, the host family. You have to understand, this was a big deal. And you had a social responsibility if you're going to invite people to your house to celebrate this wedding feast of the newlyweds, that as the host family, society dictated that you better have enough food and drink. Even if the whole extended family had to chip in, you needed to have enough food and drink for your guests. To not do so was considered a great shame. And so that seems like, it's, it's, and it seems likely that Mary was a relative because she's kind of worried about it, okay? And uh, why would she be so worried if she wasn't family, is my point. And um, she's so concerned about it that she even brings it to Jesus' attention. But he seems to kind of rebuff her, doesn't he? He said in verse 4, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Now, we read those words, and of course we, we uh, inject them with our own feelings as far as, as far as how they were said. And most of us would read that and go, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? His words seem harsh, don't they, if we read them that way? But in reality, those words are difficult in the Greek. They're difficult to translate into English. And therefore, our English translations are prone to mislead us as to what he's really saying. Most of the translations translate Jesus' words to Mary in this way, similar ways. What have I to do with you? Or what does your concern have to do with me? Like he's you know, brushing her aside. Don't bother me. Don't you know who I am? <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, but really, guys, the phrase appears several times in the Bible. Uh, similar wording. And basically means, what have I, excuse me, what do we have in common? And guys, in this context, the answer is nothing. Let me clarify. One scholar said with regard to the use of this phrase in Scripture, he said, and I quote, David uses it twice with respect to his cousins, the sons of Zeruah, how impossible it was for them to have anything in common with him in the spiritual life. David was a spirit-filled guy. Uh, his cousins were carnal guys to the core, brutal, vicious, uh, violent men. And so uh, at one point David's had it and says, you know, what have I to do with you? Or what do we have in common? Okay? The author goes on three times the demons by using the same expression, Reveal how Satan has nothing in common with Christ or Christ with Satan. And lastly, the Lord used it to the Virgin Mary to show how impassable is the gulf between his sinless deity and her sinful humanity. And that only one voice had authority for his ear, end quote. Because of this, let me, you know, tell you what I believe he's really saying to her. Something along these lines. What do we have in common? 
I am on a divine mission and only do what pleases my Father. While you live for the earth and you do what pleases people, family. He said, woman, this is my concern, not yours. As the Father directs me that I will do. Or in other words, guys, he's saying, if, any, if I do anything, it will, be, it will be because my Father has told me to, not because you have. Now, again, guys, we have to understand he's not putting her down. He is telling her, Mary, our relationship has changed. When I was growing up under your authority as your child, I did what you wanted. I, the Lord was completely obedient. I get the impression. A model child. Uh, you know. But he's basically saying to her, Mary, our relationship has changed. I love you with all my heart. But you understand now. I have started my public ministry, and now it's all about my father's authority uh, over my life. It's all about his will. I do only the words he tells me to do. Now, I say this, guys, because it sounds as if Mary is twisting Jesus' arm to do something he really doesn't want to do. As if she's the one in charge, not him. This is something that I was taught in Catholic school. If you really want something from God, don't go to Jesus. He's indifferent to us anyways. You go straight to his mother. You see, she's got more pull with him than you do. And even if he doesn't want to do what you're asking, he, he can't refuse his mother. Okay? So, you know, go to her. She'll butter him up. You'll get what you want. That's a teaching, by the way, that got to start right here in this passage. First of all, can I just say this? That is a completely ridiculous, unbiblical teaching. The Lord Jesus Christ loved us supremely, and he proved it by going to the cross and dying for us. He said, greater love is no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. And secondly, can I just say this? Jesus knew about this wedding before he made the world, John 1. Remember? He, was, you know, he made the world and everything in it. He knew about this wedding before the foundation of the world. And he knew his father would um, had ordained for him to be there and perform this miracle. And guys, Mary had nothing to do with it. You say, but yeah, but that seemed to contradict the full statement that Jesus gave here. That, uh, you know... Uh, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. As if Mary's twisting him to do something uh, before he was ready to start his public ministry and start doing miracles. Let me tell you something. I don't believe Jesus was saying here that uh, his time to, to perform miracles had not yet come. If so, guys, listen. If so, he wouldn't have disobeyed his father's will and done one anyway, Mary or no Mary. Now, I believe Mary had waited a long time for Jesus to declare that he was the Messiah and glorify himself. That was her heart. She loved her son, uh, and she wanted him to finally, uh, you know, tell everybody who he really was and establish the kingdom, right? I mean, she had been waiting for this for a long time, ever since the angel Gabriel first appeared to her and gave her the news that she as a virgin would be the mother of a, give birth to a very special child, uh, back in Luke chapter 1 once again. Verse 32, the angel Gabriel said, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high, uh, son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So Gabriel is telling her, Mary, you're a virgin, but you're going to bear a son. 
He is going to be a unique child in the sense that he will be the son of God, not a mere mortal. He is going to be the son of God, and eventually he will rule over the throne of Israel and over the entire world, and his kingdom will have no end. She's been waiting 30 years for that to come true. I mean, he's 30 now. He's just begun his public ministry pretty much. And Mary is wondering, okay, you've started your public ministry. Let's go. What better time to declare you're the Messiah? I mean, they're out of wine. You make wine, turn water into wine. I mean, the, the, the news that Messiah is here is something the Jewish people have been waiting for for centuries. What joy will bring everyone? For you to announce, I'm, I'm here, I'm the Messiah, you've waited for me. And what better way to, a place to do it at a wedding where there's joy already? And uh, Jesus, it's time to get going here. It's time to, you know, make yourself known. Now, God bless Mary. She did want the Lord Jesus to be glorified. What she didn't understand was the first time he came, he didn't come to reign, he came to die. She didn't know that. She may have thought about it um, from the words of Simeon in Luke 1, but I don't think she fully grasped everything. But um, what the Bible tells us very clearly is that Jesus came the first time to die. When he comes the second time, he will reign. He will establish the kingdom. But right now, his time had not yet come to be glorified and to establish the kingdom. Now, Mary kind of backs off, and in verse 5, said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Guys, it's important to understand, you know what, these are the last recorded words of Mary in the Bible? Think about that. This very godly young woman, the very last words she spoke that are recorded in the Bible, whatever he says to you, do it. Mary was a good woman, a godly woman. She got a little overzealous. We get a little overzealous sometimes, don't we? And we're convinced that God should do something. And basically, like Mary, we're trying to twist the arm of God to do what we think is right. Not that we, we don't want to do anything wrong. We just think we're right. So many of our prayers are directional prayers and not direct prayers. Directional prayers is where I'm trying to turn God in the direction I want him to go. Or I'm basically trying to get God to be my servant. Or direct prayers are just laying out a request before the Lord. And then like the Lord Jesus said, but Father, not my will, but your, your will be done. That's a direct prayer that doesn't try to control. It simply lays out the request that says, Lord, you're God. I, I, you're, I'm your servant. You're my master. Whatever you want to do, that's what I want to see done. And so Mary was a good gal. She, she backed off, got a little overzealous there. But uh, basically said, well, okay, you know, told the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, just a little side thing. Oh, and by the way, it's interesting that when she stopped trying to direct him and what he should do and simply left it up to him, Jesus responded with action. Again, good uh, rule for prayer. But just a little side note, the word servants there in verse 5 is not the normal word uh, for servants. The normal word for servants in or servant in the New Testament is uh, doulos, singular douloi, 
it's not douloi here. Douloi or doulos is the word for slave. Now, I will tell you that most of the words, most of the time a word is translated servants, it is the word doulos or douloi. It's slaves, okay? Uh, no master can serve, uh, can, uh, no uh, servant can uh, serve two masters. Uh, again, no slave can serve two masters. You can only be owned by one master at a time, right? If you read that as servants, well, how many people here have two jobs? How many people work for more than one boss? It doesn't communicate the point. Most of the time in our English Bibles, the word, uh, it's, you see the word servant or servants, it's usually the word for slaves. That is not the normal word, that's the, excuse me, that's not the word that's used here. The word that is used here is uh, the word diakonoi or diakonos in the singular of the Greek. It means servant. That was used by Paul in 1 Timothy um, 3 verses 8 to 12, or verses 8 and 12, to speak of deacons in the church who are simply servants. All right. This word here simply means servants, and I believe, not slaves, this was a poor family, I, I don't think they owned slaves, but simply the word that, that means that these were probably friends uh, and or family of the, uh, of, the, uh, of the couple getting married, and uh, so these were served, just family members, probably friends, helping out with the wedding feast, like Mary was a family member. Now, verse 6, we read, now, there were uh, set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Uh, what are these stone pots? And why so much water did this family have, uh, you know, in store? Uh, because the Jewish people would use uh, this water for the ceremonial cleansing of themselves from defilement. In other words, if uh, you touch the dead body, you'd be considered ceremonially unclean. And you have to go through this rite of purification, this uh, ceremony of ritual purification using water to bathe with in a certain way, which would, would wash the defilement away. Same thing if, you, if you're a Jewish, you touched a Gentile or an unclean animal, you'd have to wash in a ceremonial way to cleanse yourself from this defilement. Uh, this was probably a large family, which is why they had so much water. Uh, you know, not saying that the volume of water indicated they're a wicked, sinful family. We don't get that from the text. Just though there was probably a lot of people living in this house, they needed a lot of water, very religious family, uh, so that they were using the water constantly to uh, purify themselves in a kind of a ritual way. Verse 7, Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some, draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. This would be kind of comparable to our uh, head waiter, Again, probably a family member that was helping out. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, so they knew what had happened. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now, guys, as I said, back then a wedding feast would last a week, and running out of wine was totally unacceptable, as we said. But most of these families were poor, or at least middle class, lower middle class families, financially speaking, they didn't have a lot of money. So to kind of save on money, they would start off with the good wine. And then when people were feeling happy and cheerful, they kind of bring out the inferior stuff later on in the week, because it was cheaper, they, they saved money that way. 
However, in the story, the head waiter is amazed that this family has saved the best wine for last. Now, hang on to that for a second. Because we said last week that John chooses stories to put in his gospel not not just for historical value, but for spiritual application. He is using these stories to communicate some spiritual truths. Hang on to that thought for a minute. Now, here's where some of the controversy comes in. From the sheer volume of wine Jesus created out of this water, some 120 to 180 gallons, or that he would even turn water to wine at all, in the minds of many, um, he is condoning and even encouraging drunkenness. That's ridiculous. First of all, in God's word, he condemns drunkenness. Not, he doesn't forbid use of wine at all. He condemns drunkenness as a sin, and therefore Jesus would never have done anything to condone or encourage sin, obviously. They did drink a lot of wine back then. But you have to understand something very important. In Israel back then, as well as in many countries in those days, the water was often polluted with microorganisms that would cause some very severe stomach problems. uh, But they were limited in their choices of beverage because there was no refrigeration. So you say, well, they could drink milk. Yeah, but milk would spoil pretty quick without, you have to drink it pretty quick. You couldn't leave it lying around for any length of time. It would go bad. And because there was no refrigeration, therefore, their choices of beverage was very much limited to water and wine. Now, they had full-strength wine, no doubt. If they wanted to get drunk, they could, although, as I said, the Jews looked down on drunkenness and Jewish, it was not, it was something abhorred. The Jewish people had wine, they had strong drink, no doubt about it, but um, they did not typically get drunk because that was considered very socially unacceptable uh, and all. But because they couldn't drink the water full strength because of the bacteria in it, they would dilute it with wine, one part wine to three parts water. Now that would be enough alcohol content to kill the bacteria and allow them to, uh, to drink, you know, and at social gatherings... When they got together, they would drink often this diluted wine, uh, very diluted, and all. It was just a way of just enjoying drink. But again, the purpose was not to get drunk, all right? We have to understand that, okay? And again, they, they could get drunk if they wanted to back then. They had, they had the means to do it. But there are those who say, use this story to condone the use of alcohol and even drunkenness. I've had more than one unbeliever tell me, uh, you know, what do you think about, uh, you know, drinking alcohol? Well, that's between you and God. I said, you know, but uh, uh, the Bible condemns drunkenness, alcoholism. And they both tell me, but Jesus drank wine. Jesus made the wine of Canaan. So in their mind, because Jesus made the wine, that gives them the right to get blasted every time they, you know. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's justification for them walking around, you know, stoned most of the time. Because they, you know, they can, Jesus made wine. Let me just say this to you. The Bible does not forbid all use of alcohol, even for Christians. Now, some may argue with me, but the Bible does not uh, condemn the use of alcohol in any way uh, at all. I mean, uh, and I've had Christians ask me, uh, is it a sin for me to have a glass of wine or a glass of uh, beer uh, once in a while? I say, look, that's up to you. That's between you and God. I don't see anything in the Bible that condemns that as sin. Drunkenness is a sin. Don't get drunk. 
But as Christians, can I just encourage you? Because, you know, I don't drink. Uh, you know, my wife and I, we don't, we don't touch alcohol. Uh, it's lawful for us to have a drink once in a while. We don't do it because I want to set an example. If you come to me and say, Pastor, do you drink? I want to be able to look you in the eyes and tell you, the, God's honest truth, no, I don't drink. I don't drink wine or any alcoholic, uh, you know, beverage. That's my conviction. I'm not saying you can't have a glass of wine or a bottle of beer once in a while. It's up it's between you and God. But can I just encourage you to pray about going, uh, you know, alcohol-less. You don't drink any alcohol at all. We don't need it. We don't need it. To me, and I'm not, I'm not coming down on anybody in particular. I don't even know what you're doing. But for me, people that have to drink alcohol is because something's missing and they want to induce an altered state of, you know, bring about some joy and happiness because they're not very happy in their lives. Now, there are Christians like this. They're not walking closely with God. Uh, the joy of the Lord is not really moving in their lives anymore. They've kind of stagnated. And we don't live in a void. We don't live in a vacuum. And don't you know that if people are not being filled with the Spirit, which is joy, right? Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, when He fills you, fills you with all the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of that fills you. You don't need alcohol when you're filled with the Spirit. But if you're not walking closely with God, there's that void again. And so you want to you know, you want to manufacture some joy and happiness. And so people will go to alcohol. Yes, but Jesus drank. Well, yes, I believe he did, but he never got drunk. Besides the wine back then, guys, let's talk about wine. Homemade, all right? And it wasn't like the wine we have today that is distilled by the liquor industry, uh, much stronger than they had. And the liquor industry has designed the alcoholic beverages they produce to quickly induce a buzz in people because that's what keeps them coming back. Guys, that's what kept me coming back before I got saved. I hated alcohol. That's my wife. Every time I take a sip of beer, I'd make a face. <laughs> I didn't enjoy drinking. I hated it. So why did I do it? Because I want to get blasted. I want to get blasted. That's pure and simple. I wanted to drink as much alcohol as I could, as fast as I could, because I wanted to get buzzed. I don't need that anymore. I am so thankful for that, that I don't have to have fun by drinking and then pay the price the next day or that night, which I've done many times before I got saved. Um, as a pastor, I've seen many lives destroyed through the use of alcohol. I've seen many families and marriages ripped apart. We don't need, we have plenty of choices for beverage today, right? As a Christian and as a pastor, I don't want to support an industry. Not that everybody in the liquor industry is evil. But I don't want to support an industry that is purposely designed as beverages to ensnare people, to keep them coming back for more, regardless of the impact it's going to have on them physically and their families. Why would I want to support an industry whose main goal is, is to ensnare, enslave, and ultimately destroy? Although they wouldn't say that. And I agree. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that they're purposely out there to kill people. But that's what happens. I don't, I don't want to support that. Um, I just don't think it's what 
Well, it doesn't honor God. And every alcoholic started down that path with a single drink. Again, don't be drunk with wine. We're in success, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 11. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So they were beginning to believe in him more and more now. Uh, they, had, they already believed he was Messiah, but now they're starting to see he's more than a man. He's starting to do miracles, which are beginning to teach them that this is, in fact, the Son of God. Now, let me just say this in closing. As we look at this story uh, again, guys, and uh, John shows this story. He's the only gospel writer that includes this wedding in Cana. I believe John did it for a reason. I believe through this literal wedding feast, he's communicating, well, the joys of a future wedding feast. That's true. But I believe that as this wedding feast was the culmination of, remember we, last week we talked about a typical marriage, uh, you know, procedure of marriage, and finally the wedding, and then the wedding feast. It started off with a couple being betrothed to each other. At that point, they were legally married, but they didn't live together, didn't consummate the marriage. He had to go away to prepare a place for them. It took about a year, right? Then he'd finally come back. During the betrothal period, they were considered man or husband and wife, so much so that if either one died, the other would be considered a widow or a widower. But then when he finally came back, the wedding feast took place, and their joy was complete. Let me just say this to you. Every person in this room who has received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have entered into the betrothal period with your Savior. You are now joined to him in marriage. Even though he has not come back, he's preparing that place for us right now, isn't he? He's going to come back for us one day soon, I believe, and take us to be with himself, and we'll never be separated again. Right now, there is joy because we know the Lord. We have joy in our hearts, right? Even though our, our outward circumstances are not always easy. Someday, when he comes back, whatever joy we had now was, is going to be inferior to that incredible joy we're going to have for eternity with him in heaven, right? But even now, guys, can I just say this in closing? I believe in my heart that God wants your relationship to him to become more and more joyful. Not easy necessarily outwardly, but more and more joyful in your heart. Why? Because he wants you to draw closer and closer to him in your heart. And in his presence, there is fullness of what? Joy. And wine represents joy. You can, you can search that, take a concordance. It's connected with joy all throughout the scriptures. Here's the thing. This is something only mature Christians really understand. The joy of the Lord often comes through the most difficult periods of our life. Because we have to depend on him. We have to draw close to him. Paul the Apostle in Philippians 3 said, It's my heart's desire to know him. Paul, what? You've been a Christian for 30 years. You already know him. No. I want to know him deeper every day. I want to know the, um, uh, the extent of his power. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. See, you're not going to know the Lord unless you allow him to put you through trials that will increase your faith, grow you as a Christian, and draw you close to him. They're not easy. It's called taking up the cross. And the more we say to the Lord, 
Too many fair-weather Christians. God, you're there to bless me. Keep the blessings coming. If you stop blessing me, I'm out of here. That's a carnal Christian. A mature, spirit-filled Christian says, Lord, like Mary, whatever you tell your servant, I will do because you're my master. I will go where you want me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And if there's a cross in it, if there's trial or persecution, I submit to it. And as you do, you will find you will draw closer and closer to him. And as such, the level of joy will increase more and more. It will culminate in heaven when we finally see him face to face. I think the worst testimony we can give the world is being sad, down, walking around like we're miserable, you know, drinking alcohol because we're so miserable inside. We need something to kind of artificially give, bring some happiness. That's sad. That's not what God wants. God wants us to get close to him. Yeah, forget all the other stuff. Don't be filled with wine. That leads to a life of excess and ruin. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Greek is be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. That will only happen if you continually draw close to the Lord. So may God give us grace to continue. And uh, we will, God willing, um, continue in John next week. If Jesus comes before then, then it's a moot point. Uh, you can ask him. He'll, uh, he'll be the teacher of the Bible studies after that. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you do love us supremely. You're not indifferent. Uh, we don't have to go to your mom, uh, Lord, to get the Mary can't answer prayers anyways. Uh, but Lord, we thank you that you have told us to come to you, to the Father, to bring our requests. You love us supremely. And you want to work in all that. You want to help. You want to provide. Give us grace, Lord, to understand that. And to know that, you know what? You want us to be filled with joy. Your presence is fullness of joy. The joy of our salvation is our strength. Lord, give us grace. Get our, help us to get our eyes off of our circumstances, which just tend to bring us down. And give us grace, Lord, to keep looking up and to praise you for your great and precious promises, for you know what awaits us in heaven someday soon. And we just thank you, Lord. We want to be joyful people. I want the world to see that we are not joyful because we're drunk. We're joyful because we're filled with the Holy Spirit. So thank you, Lord. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. In Jesus' precious name, amen.